I want to turn as we begin to the book of John, chapter 17. It's a verse that we are all familiar with. John, chapter 17 and verse 3. John 17, 3, Jesus in his great intercessory prayer. And he makes a very significant statement here. He says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Knowing God and Jesus. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. The goal of the Christian journey is to know Jesus. And we never arrive at the end of that journey because we are always seeking to know him more. Even after a billion years in eternity, we will be seeking to know Jesus and his love more. Every day, our goal and our desire should be to know Jesus and to know him more. And so as we think of that, we're going to be focusing on that for the next couple months. And we're using as a guidebook the book Steps to Christ. We have a number of them. They're called Happiness for Life in the edition that we have. But if you do not have a Steps to Christ... Uh, or if you just want to read it in a different, uh, same words, just different uh, cover and things, uh, please pick one up. We have some up here. We have them at the back table. Because I'd like to encourage everyone as we go through to read one chapter of Steps to Christ a week. Now that'll only take you between 15 minutes to half an hour a week. It's not a big assignment. But it will be a blessing. And uh, we're, I'm not going to read the, read the book in, uh, in the sermons, but I'm going to base the concept of the chapter, and we're going to be studying that in the sermons. But, you know, the first chapter in this edition is No Greater Love. The standard edition, it's God's love for man. As we seek to know Jesus more, we must recognize in a deeper, greater way God's love for us. There is nothing more elementary in the Christian life to know that God loves you. But in essence, there's nothing deeper as well. And I believe we need to try to understand God's love for us in a greater way so that we can know Jesus more. And as I think of God's love, probably the closest human relationship that somewhat can approximate the love of God is a mother's love for her child. Throughout history, there have been countless acts of mothers 
love for their children. Countless selfless acts. And many times, it's the day-by-day little unselfish acts that are unnoticed that are actually the greatest selfless acts of love. But there's an account. It's just an account. On August 16th of 1987, Northwest Flight 255 was taking off from Detroit International Airport. Unfortunately, it didn't make it very far past the runway. As far as an accident, it is still, if you can discount uh, acts of terrorism, it is still the second worst air accident in U.S. history. 156 people tragically died. Four of them were hit by the plane, or maybe two. I think two died as they were hit by the plane as they were driving by. But ironically, in this flight, there was one survivor. And the survivor was four-year-old Paula Chican. And the question was asked, how did everybody in this plane perish? Every stewardess, pilot, co-pilot, and every passenger except this four-year-old girl. There were other children. It could have been just the seat that she was in. But she was referred to as America's orphan because her mother, her father, and her brother all passed away in that flight. It's not totally certain, but it appears to some that what saved Little Paula's life. I'm not sorry, not Paula. Yeah. No, I have that name wrong. Paula was the mother. What saved this four-year-old girl's life, according to some accounts, is that in the one-minute flight, or thereabouts, the mother realized that the plane was going to crash and got out of her seat to go and huddle over her four-year-old daughter. There's no way to know for certain. She has no recollection of it. She has spoken about it now, but she still has no recollection of it. But if so, that four-year-old girl's mother gave the ultimate sacrifice for her child. And there are countless selfless acts of love that a mother has done for her child or children. 
And God uses this tenderest earthly connection. But he uses it to illustrate that this tenderest earthly connection that we know is still fallible, but his love is not. Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Maybe verse 14 would be relevant to read as well. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. God's people say, God has forgotten me. God has forsaken me. And God responds and he responds with a question. And he says, can a weaning, can a woman forget her nursing child? And then he states what is rare but tragically is still true. Yes, they may forget. The closest earthly connection that you can think of. Is still imperfect. The mother may forget her child. But then God assures, yet I will not forget you. And then he says why he will not forget us. He says, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Jesus had not died on the cross yet. But he says, your names are on my hands because I know I am going to give everything for you. And those ugly scars in your hands are actually the reminder of your name that I have. I cannot, I will not forget. God's love surpasses the love of a mother for her child. What is God's love like? How do we understand it? Is it important that we understand and remind ourselves continually of God's love for us? I want to go to Matthew chapter 25. I think it's a very interesting uh, verse, and it's we're not going to look at the whole parable, but there's a point I want to bring out here. This is the parable of the talents, and of course there were the three servants, and among these three servants, one is given five, another is given two, and the other servant is given one. 
The one that is given five uses his talents and gains five more. The one that is given two uses his talents and gains more. But the one that was given one talent, what does he do? He buries it in the ground. (laughs) It doesn't grow, that's right. And notice why he says he buried it in the ground. Matthew chapter 25, verses 24 and 25. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Did this man steal the master's talent? Technically, he did not. The master gave him one talent, and he returned one talent. And But he tells us why he did not do what he saw the others doing. You know, if he would have buried the talent and then he perhaps saw his other ser- his fellow servants and they were out working with the talent and uh, getting gaining income and whatever else, he could have dug that up again and started to do it and I think he would not have been condemned. But he saw what they were doing. He did not do it. And notice the reason he gives. He says, because I knew you, To be a hard man. This servant's conception of the character of his master influenced his actions. Our conception, even subliminal conception of the character of God influences our actions as well. We know that God is love. But do we have a warped perception of God's love that has influenced how we react? And I would suggest that most likely we do in some way, shape, or form. And I would suggest the reason for that is because while a mother or a parent's love is the greatest love that this world knows, there's no perfect parent. And as good as, or not, as our parents may have been, it colors our thinking about our Heavenly Father. And while we may have had the greatest parents in the world, they're still human parents. 
And because they're still human parents, it still falls short of God's love. I want to look at some examples here of how we can get a warped conception of God's love. Think of the animistic religions. That's the native ancestral worship, frequently religions that were dominant in the um, more primitive tribes. And generally speaking, when you look at the amnistic religions, they see their gods as severe and harsh. And so what are they trying to do? They bring sacrifices because they're trying to appease their gods. And when misfortunes come, if there's a flood or if there's a drought or if anything else that is unfortunate takes place, well, it's because the gods are angry. I wonder if they see God, the gods, as severe. Because they might have had times when their parents acted severely. I still remember that, I believe it was the first time I was in Africa. And uh, The family connection is kind of hard, at least in the area where I was in in Africa, hard to understand because they come to church and the kids might be sitting one place and the mother might be sitting someplace else and the father might be sitting someplace else and you never quite know who is all even a family unit. But I remember one morning there was a, we were staying in a house, this was, they were, Seventh-day Adventist believers, leaders in the church. And they had taken in a girl, who was not their daughter, but they were raising her somewhat as their daughter because whatever circumstances. And I remember waking up to hearing screaming and feet running with more feet following. And it was the, uh, not, not the mother, but we'll say the mother, that was running with a great big stick, chasing this girl, and uh, early in the morning, and I didn't understand the wording that was being said, but I can tell you it was not very pleasant. Well, what had happened was this girl had uh, stolen something, and uh, so it was a severe offense, but it was, uh, uh, she was going to pay for it very, very severely as well. If she got caught, that's why she was running as fast as she could. Could that color your conception of God as well? No. 
For a minor infraction, not saying that that was minor, but for some minor infraction, a severe beating or a severe punishment based on this. And it can color our conception that if I mess up, God is going to do whatever to me. But that is not the character of God's love. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3 says, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. God's love endures forever. And even in disciplining, it's a manifestation of God's love. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 that he whom God loves, he chastens. Of course, earthly parents, we're chastening because of love, but sometimes it can go too far. In fact, we see in the very first curse in the Bible, God says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. God said, I am cursing the ground and it is not going to yield the precious metals and the fruit that it yielded before, but I am cursing the ground for your sake. It is a blessing to you, even though we might not have recognized it then. There are other views of God. Deism is not popular as a philosophy today, but it's still very prevalent. Deism is the idea that God set the world in order and then he stepped away. And things just continue as God set them up to begin with. Sure, there is a God, but he's not involved. And like I said, it's not a common philosophy today, but it's a very common way of thinking, even if people do not categorize it as deism. Yeah, I believe there's a God. Yeah, he's a good God, but he's not involved. Are there ever times where parents become busy and detached? Some may have been abandoned, or one parent was not present. For others, maybe the parents were so busy working that it seemed like there was no time for the children. Can you see how deism would be a view of God that is similar to a child that is not had the presence of the parent that was needed? God is not a detached parent. Notice Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43, I'm thankful in our Sabbath school that we are studying the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the magnificent prophets of the Old Testament and well worth our study. Isaiah chapter 43, 
Notice verse 1. And now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. God says, I named you. You are mine. And then notice the next verse. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Why? God is saying, I am with you in every difficulty. I have not abandoned you. I am not detached. I have called you by your name. You are mine. What about for many? They see God as waiting to catch you in a mistake. Their view of God is uh, that you're taking a multiple test, a multiple question, multiple question test, and if you miss one, you fail. Or their view of God is that God is the heavenly policeman, and if you're going one mile over the speed limit, he's got you in his radar. I suppose as parents, sometimes we can be too exacting and perhaps convey that idea. For some, they felt like they could never please their parents. Always saw mistakes instead of strengths. But God is not an exacting parent. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. The beautiful words here. Ezekiel, by the way, reveals God's love in a great degree. God is not trying to catch us in a mistake. God is not looking for the little mistakes. Notice what he says here. Ezekiel 33 and 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? You can hear the love coming from those words, can't you? Why should you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn, turn, and live. God desires all to be saved. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. But then there's another concept, somewhat opposite concept here. For many, God loves you so much, it doesn't matter what you do. But 
Have you ever erred in parenting as an indulgent parent? For many, God is an indulgent parent. Perhaps that's because that's what they're familiar with. Or maybe it's just because it's easier to think that way. Could do anything. Didn't require obedience. And you haven't manifested in a myriad of different theologies today. Once you're saved, you're always saved. All that's necessary is to accept Jesus, but you don't have to follow him. They don't say it quite like that. But it's, that's the idea. <laughs> Go to Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. I love, actually it's Exodus 34. I love the balance that God gives here when he's proclaiming to Moses his glory, his character. And notice what he says. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's a wonderful description, isn't it? He describes that first, doesn't he? He describes it most. But that's not the only description of his character. We continue reading, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. By the way, that's an act of mercy as well. It's not an act of severity. That God limits it to those that observe the behavior. God proclaims his name. He is merciful. He's long-suffering. He's abounding in goodness and truth. But God does have some justice in his character as well. And I would suggest we don't know. I'm not, I don't want to give a percentage. But I would suggest that God's mercy and his long-suffering is by far the larger part of his character, but there is still some justice as well. Because justice, because love without justice is not real love. God is not an indulgent parent. He asks us to accept him, but he also asks us to follow him as well. God is not a severe parent. He's not a detached parent. He's not an exacting parent. He's not an indulgent parent. But because we live in a sinful world and because there are no perfect parents, we can get imbalanced views of God's love. And the analogy of parental love is a wonderful analogy to demonstrate God's love, but it still falls short. And the challenge is that we view God 
through our biased lenses of what love is. And so what is God going to do to reveal his love and to try to take away the tinted glasses that we all wear whether we recognize it or not? He did the only thing he could do. He revealed his character, and his love by sending the only one that could reveal the character of God because he was God. God's love gave. We know the verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved that he gave. He could give no more. He gave everything he had because he was trying to help us to understand God's love. Go with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 26. This is Jesus' closing prayer. Notice what Jesus says. He says, And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus says, I've declared your name. I've declared your character. Why? So that the love that you have for me can be in them. Jesus lives God's love. Now, we would have loved to have beheld Jesus even one day to see how the children reacted to him, to see how he healed the oppressed and the despised and the afflicted. How he allowed no prejudice to color his mind against anyone. When John the Baptist was doubting in the dungeon and he sent his disciples to him, and they said, are you the one that we should look for, or do we look for another? And Jesus doesn't answer right away. He goes about speaking kindness to the children, comforting the afflicted, healing the sick, and all of this, and then he turns to them and says, go tell John what you've seen. The evidence of his Messiahship was love lived. God's love gives. God's love lives. And God's love dies. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is the definition of love. 
But in order to get this definition, we've got to contemplate, meditate the life of Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Herein is love, as the King James. The definition of love, the revelation of love, God's character given, lived, and now dying. Voluntarily, for while ye were yet sinners, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Christ died for you. He dies for a race of rebels. To understand, to get the definition of God's love, we have to spend time thinking about it. It would be a good idea to turn to Matthew 27. Jesus, we're not going to read it today, but Jesus' experience in the last hours of his life. I knew one man that called it the power chapter. He said whenever he was feeling down, whenever he needed to recharge, he would turn and read Matthew 27, and it would be a beneficial plan for us to frequently read Matthew 27, or another one of the other Gospels if you prefer them, to understand God's love. As Mandy sang, we have to think about his love. Our view, because we live in a sinful world, our view of love is warped. But God uses the strongest bands, possible, strongest analogy possible. He uses a mother's love to illustrate his love. Can the nursing mother forget her child? Yes, they may forget, but I will not forget. God's love is more enduring than any earthly mother. It's stronger than any earthly father. God's love is unfathomable. And it's displayed in the life of Jesus. In order for us to be benefited by this love, we must think about His love. We must meditate upon His love. We must study the life of Jesus. Steps to Christ, page 15. It says, The more we study the divine character in the light of the cross, the more we see mercy, tenderness, and forgiveness blended with equity and justice, and the more clearly we discern innumerable evidences of a love that is infinite and a tender pity surpassing a mother's yearning sympathy for her wayward child. 1 John 3, verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love. Behold that love. Spurned, despised, abused, rejected, God's love is still like the prodigal son's father 
running out to meet us. And I want to challenge us this week to think about his love. To spend more time thinking of Jesus and the love he has manifested for us. Because as we think about, as we mull in our minds, as we read the gospel accounts, we are going to be able to be cleared more from our warped conception of love. And as we think about his love, as we meditate upon his love, we are going to be motivated and it's going to affect our very lives. Because what we think about the character of God will come out in how we live. Let us behold more the character of God's love.